Everyone, hello. Oh, there was silence. There we are. I, I think uh, Elizabeth deserves a round of applause for reading that reading. But uh, well done. And uh, it's wonderful when I come up here to Bexley North. Uh, I mean, I know there's some people here today visiting because of uh, the baptism. I nearly said of Theodore, but uh, no, of <laughs> uh, Angus. But uh, uh, it's also wonderful to see. New faces I've met, so please make sure you introduce yourself or come and say good day uh, at morning tea. But now I'm going to pray for us as we turn to God's word, so let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity starting today to get back into the book of Acts. Uh, we pray it will encourage us, we pray that it will challenge us, uh, and we pray that it will remind us uh, of what it is you have done through our Lord Jesus Christ and what you want us to do in your wor- world as we wait for his return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you remember back to last year, at least those who were with us last year, when we started our studies in the book of Acts. Uh, we, had, uh, we looked at the first half of two books last year, the book of Acts and the book of Romans, and this year we're looking at the second half, and we're starting with the second half of the book of Acts. And what we saw, at least I hope you did, because uh, I wasn't here to know, uh, what we uh, saw was how the book of Acts is really our family history. So it's our you know, ancestry.com search results, if you like, uh, it's we are the end result of what starts in the book of Acts. The growth of Christianity, if you think about it, is actually truly one of the most amazing facts of history. It's really a miraculous fact of history. Uh, in the history of the world, there has been nothing like the spread of Christianity. One man from a, a, a backwater of the world, an unknown part of the world at the time, uh, sent 11 largely uneducated men into the world and with 100, within 100 years... He had changed the world. Uh, He had shaped history. And what made it incredible was it wasn't spread by a military conquest. There have been other things that have been spread in that way. Uh, It wasn't spread by a a government program. In fact, there is no reason, humanly speaking, why Christianity survived. There is no reason, humanly speaking, why Christianity survived, let alone spread, because it was opposed, it was persecuted from the very beginning. So how did it happen? I was reading a non-Christian historian talking about this, writing about the spread of Christianity, and he said this, he said, in the end, it wasn't primarily, I've just realised I forgot about the slides, there we go, I keep forgetting I've got the power here at Bexley North, so there you go, Uh, he, he said, and I'll come to the quote in a second, he said, it wasn't primarily because of political machinations, it wasn't because of great strategies, it wasn't because of an advertising campaign, instead he said, the primary means of its growth was through the united and motivated efforts of the Christian believers who invited their friends, relatives and neighbours to share the good news. Now, as he says that, he he writes it with with a tone of amazement. Like, can you believe this, that this, this movement that changed the world, that's how it spread, just through a shopkeeper talking to his neighbour who talked to their neighbour and said, I've discovered something exciting, I want you to know it too. It's like, you see, how amazing is that? That that is not how world-changing movements are meant to work. But as we know, that is how God has chosen to save the world. God takes ordinary human beings and he spreads the message of salvation as we share the good news that we have come to know. And the book of Acts is the start of the story. So I've I've been excited about getting back into the book of Acts this term. I hope you get excited because really the purpose of Acts is to fire you up. That's why it's written. The purpose of Acts is to excite you and and amaze you to see what God has done and will continue doing through the preaching of the gospel. 
because we're picking up the story again halfway through. So sort of like the TV shows do, uh, we need to do a bit of a previously on Survivor. Well, this this is previously in the book of Acts, because I don't expect that you remember everything from back in Acts chapters 1 to 12. And if you weren't here with us, you probably don't remember much about what happened in Acts 1 to 12. So I'm now going to do the previously on the book of Acts very, very quickly. The key thing that has already happened to, to kick off the book of Acts is that Jesus has risen from the dead. That is the event that changed history. Jesus risen from the dead. And right at the start of Acts, the risen Jesus appears to the disciples and he gives them a mission. You see it in chapter 1, verse 8, which is the key verse to understanding the whole book of Acts. So look at it with me. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want you to just put yourself in those first disciples' shoes, those 11 men's shoes. It was 11 at that time. By by then, Judas was gone. Uh, Jesus says, I'm giving you a job. Your job is be my witnesses. Tell people about me. Invite people to come and believe in me like you have come to believe in me. And I want you to start at home. He said, I want you to start here in Jerusalem. Then I want you to go to Judea and Samaria, just the countryside around Jerusalem and then after that I don't know how about taking it to the ends of the earth you think about for 11 mainly uneducated men from Galilee that was an impossible task but Jesus says you won't be doing it alone he says you'll do it with the help of the Holy Spirit he will go with you and as you tell people about me he will be at work in people through the message you share And we saw the start of all that when we look at chapters 1 to 12 last year. They started preaching in Jerusalem. And do you remember what happened? They started preaching in Jerusalem and thousands of people were converted. Every day they preached. It was like this amazing moment. Thousands were saved. It's like they built the church, like one here at Bexley North, and it was redundant after one day because it was just full and overflowing. Thousands of people. It was incredible. The church just grew and grew and grew but it was just in Jerusalem and it was still just the Jews who were hearing about Jesus. They they hadn't gone out. Then something happened. Something forced them to go out. Do you remember what it was that forced them to go out? It was that they started getting killed in Jerusalem. It was persecution. They didn't go out off their own bat. It, It was because Stephen got stoned to death, the first Christian martyr. And then after that, James, the first of the apostles to die, had a sword run through him for telling people uh, about Jesus. But as they fled, what did they keep doing? They kept talking. They, they might have been killing them, but they could not shut them up. And so wherever they went, they told people about Jesus. And so, so in those first 12 chapters, that started Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we started to see it all be fulfilled. The gospel had gone to Jerusalem, the gospel had gone to Samaria and all of Judea and wherever it went, people were believing in Jesus. People were being saved. But there was still the small matter of the ends of the earth. The Christian faith was still on a world scale an irrelevancy. It was a tiny Jewish group based in in a tiny sort of backwater of the world on the edge of the Mediterranean. But then two things happened. Two massive things happened that shaped all of history. Remember what the two things were? First was... God showed the Apostle Peter that people didn't have to become Jews to be saved. 
This was massive. This, it, God showed Peter that people didn't have to take on all the Old Testament laws and become Jews to be saved. They didn't need to get circumcised, which you might guess was a bit of a stumbling block for men becoming converts. They didn't have to stop eating pork, for which I'm incredibly thankful. So, you know, you know it's one of my favourite things. And he did this for a man called Cornelius, a Roman centurion. He, he, he said, here is Cornelius. He wants to know Jesus. Go and tell him and eat with him. Eat the pork roast he's cooking. Eat the bacon, eat the oysters, eat the things you're forbidden under the Old Testament law. And so at that point, the Jewish believers realised we don't have to make these people Jews, people just need to trust in Jesus. That's what makes someone a Christian, that they come and put their faith in Jesus. It is for all people. Then something even bigger happened. You remember what it was? Saul, or Paul as he became known, got converted. This was the man who had been leading the persecution of the Christians. He was there egging them on to stone Stephen to death. He was responsible for it. On the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him and he becomes a Christian. More than that, God gives him the job of leading the charge of taking the gospel to the nations. Understand the irony of this and how God has a sense of humour, if you like. Uh, He chooses the most Jewish of Jews to lead the charge of taking the gospel to the nations. The man who says, I am the Jew of Jews, the Jew beyond all Jews, God says, you're the one who's going to take the gospel to the nations. So at this point, this is where we're at, end of chapter 12, things are set to go off and that is where we're picking up the story. In the first half of the book of Acts, it's really Peter's story of how the gospel went to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Now Peter fades away, it's the story of Paul and the gospel going to the world. That has been a very long introduction to get you back up to speed. That was, you know, when you you have last week on the TV show and that's taken half the time of the TV show. Well, that's what we've had here. Now, shake yourself off, get yourself back on board. Please have a Bible open in front of you because as you heard in the reading, it's a long reading and I'm only going to skate over it in end of points. If you need a Bible, put up your hand and someone will, Josh will run one to you. Uh, Just wake your hand up. And I've got to say, I challenge you, uh, if you are a Christian... Uh, I challenge you to not get fired up by our studies in the book of Acts over the next few weeks. Uh, but let's go. Uh, we're looking at verses 1 to 3, first of all, and I've called it sent by God. Uh, so verses 1 to 3. So we pick up the story, we're in Antioch, which is uh, what we would now call Syria. Uh, it's a, a church has grown up there. Paul and Barnabas, two of the leaders of that church. Just think about what a church to be a part of, if you think about it. They've got five prophets and teachers and two of them are Paul and Barnabas, possibly number one and two on the greatest preachers in history list sort of thing. So that's a great church to be a part of, but only for a little while because God says you're losing Paul and Barnabas. He tells, look at verse two, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. Now we immediately get caught in the weeds when we look at the book of Acts. We stop and say, hang on, how... How did the Holy Spirit say that to them? Did, it, did he appear in a vision? Did, he, did, he, uh, did they all have the same dream? Did it, did, was there a word? Was there writing on the wall? Uh, did they just feel like this was the right thing? We're not told. We, we've got no more information. Whatever happened, they understood God had a job for these two men. It's important to remember this isn't saying that is how God will speak to us. One of the errors in reading the book of Acts and thinking that God will always do that for me. Now, he does that at amazing moments in, in, in salvation history. 
Sadly, there are some Christians who are always waiting on God's voice to make a decision. That's not the way God says we're to work. The majority of the time, he's given us his word. He's given us one another to share wisdom with one another. We're responsible for our decisions. But here at this vital moment, God is saying, it's time for Barnabas and Paul to go and tell other people about Jesus. And so here, even though this was the Apostle Paul, even though they were convinced that the Holy Spirit had told them, they still prayed about it. Do you see that? They still, I think, test it. But after that, they say, look, this is God's will. So they commissioned them, they laid hands on them, and they sent them on their way. I actually think this is a wonderful moment in the book of Acts. It's actually one of my favourite moments because there is, if there's nothing sadder than people having to leave a church for bad reasons because there's false teaching or, or, or because of broken relationships or that sort of thing... Uh, on the other hand, there is no more magical moment, I think, no more wonderful thing than sending people out to preach the gospel. I think actually it is the sign of a healthy church that it sends people out. Uh, like in a few months' time, we're going to send Lama out to Vietnam and we're going to lay hands on him and we're going to say, you go on our behalf and share the gospel in Vietnam. Isn't it? It's, we'd love to have Lama stay with us at St. George North, the 4.30 congregation here at Bexley North would love to have Lama stay with us. But we say, no, 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 better for you to go. Just like when we laid our hands on the McDowells and sent them to Paraguay, or when we laid our hands on the Newbies and sent them to the Philippines, or on the Blows and sent them to Argentina. As hard as it is to let people go, we would love to have all those families with us here, wouldn't we? Many of them are from here at Bexley North. We think there's a, there's a seat for the... We'd love to have the Newbies here on a Sunday, but we say, no, 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 it's better that we send them to share the gospel there. So with the blessing of their church, Paul and Barnabas head off, they sail to Cyprus. Now I've got a map here, hopefully it's big enough for you to see. So Antioch over Syria, Lebanon, that sort of area, they sail across to Cyprus. So you see what they're doing? Uh, Now I've called this section a mission of judgment and grace. Okay, so off they go. Wherever Paul and Barnabas went, the first thing they did was they go to the synagogue and tell the Jews about Jesus. Now, why they do that? It's because the gospel is first for the Jew. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. They go to the Jews first, give them the chance to believe, and then they share it with everyone. They get to a place called Paphos, if you look there, and that's where the story focuses in on two people they meet. The first is a guy called Sergius Paulus. He was like the governor. It says he was an intelligent man who wanted to hear God's message. I I love the fact they just throw in that fact. He was an intelligent man. Uh, I don't think it's saying you need to be intelligent to be a Christian. Uh, I think it's just saying he was smart enough to work out there was something worth listening to here. Uh, and in fact, the, the gospel is for all... There are some of the most intelligent people in the world are Christians, some of the most unintelligent people in the world are Christians, some of the most intelligent people in the world are not Christians, and some of the most unintelligent people in the world are not Christians. You are not saved on the basis of your intelligence uh, because there is more than that. It is an act of the Spirit and it is an act of coming to faith But here, it tells us he's intelligent. But it's a promising start. He he wants to hear the gospel. Straight away, there's opposition. There's a sorcerer there, and he's a Jewish false prophet called Bar-Jesus. There is ever a person with the opposite name of what they're on about, it is him, isn't it? His name literally means son of salvation, son of Jesus. And what's his job? He wants to stop people becoming Christians. He's also called Elimas or the sorcerer and he's determined to stop Sergius hearing the gospel. 
Paul could not let that happen. Look at me at verse 9. Come with me, verse 9. Then says, Then Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at the sorcerer and said, You son of the devil, full of all deceit and all fraud, enemy of all righteousness, won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Powerful stuff, isn't it? And he doesn't just verbally condemn him. He actually does something really disconcerting, if you know your New Testament. In the New Testament, nearly every miracle of Jesus and every miracle of the, of the apostles is a positive miracle. Every, they make blind people see. They make lame people walk. They, they feed people who are hungry. What does he do here? A miracle of judgment. He doesn't make the blind man see. He makes the seeing man blind. So why such a strong word? Why such an act of judgment? Was well, because this man was stopping someone hearing about Jesus. There is no worse thing a person can do than stop someone hearing about Jesus. There is nothing worse because that is stopping someone finding salvation. That, that is like locking shut the fire exits in a burning building. That's why Paul calls him a son of the devil because it's the devil's work to stop people hearing about Jesus and trusting in him. That is what the devil lives to do. Satan's primary work is to lead people away from Christ. Some Christians get caught up on the devil and it's like every time they trip on a step, they say, oh, the devil's done that. You know, that no, no, no. Satan's primary work is to lead people away from salvation in Christ. And sometimes he does that through the occult, like this sorcerer in, in Cyprus. More often, though, he actually does it through the mundane things of life. I mean, what are Satan's biggest weapons today in our culture? I think it's busyness, it's technology, it's sport, it's money, it's what our family or friends think about us. He uses them all to distract us from hearing about Jesus, from trusting in Jesus, from reading his word. That's the devil's work. Sometimes, though, the devil does it through people. People who come into the church and throw doubt on sound doctrine, try to breed division and lead people away. That is the devil's work. But here, soon as Paul removes the distraction, this intelligent man, Sergius, considers the claims of Jesus and believes, and he is saved. Understand just what a great moment this is. Cornelius was already a God-fearer. Cornelius had already decided, I love the Old Testament, I believe there's one God, and he's the God who, of Moses, and he's the God of David. This guy knew nothing until Paul and Barnabas said, I want to tell you about Jesus. This is the first, unless you're from a Jewish background... This is the first drop in the ocean of us. This is our father, if you like. This is the first of us, Gentiles, becoming Christians. Understand how massive this is. But it also reminds us, wherever the gospel is preached, there will be opposition. The gospel is always a word of salvation to those who believe, but it's also a word of judgment to those who will not believe. Let's move on. Acts only gives us a highlights package. More happened in Cyprus, but just says, we'll move on from there. And so now the story moves on. I've called this very large last section, verses 13 to 52, God's work of salvation. We're going to deal very quickly with this. I spent far too long on the last week part, uh, so, but we'll deal with it quickly. From Cyprus, we look at our map again, they sail up to what we would call Turkey. And they go, just to confuse you, they go to another town called Antioch. So it's a different town. I don't know why they had to name every town Antioch in the ancient world, but they did. Last one was in Syria. This is in a place called Pisidia. 
Uh, And again, they go to the synagogue first. And after the Bible readings, the rabbi there did something I am sure he regretted for the rest of his life. He looked at Paul and Paul was a world-renowned rabbi that I'm a teacher and so forth. And he said, do you have a word of encouragement to share? Every so often at church, we have an open mic. And I say, does anyone have a word of encouragement to share? And there's just sometimes where a person gets a microphone and even as they're getting it, I know, oh no. Oh no. We're here for an hour. You, you, you know, uh, that sort of idea. I'm sure that was the case here. They made the mistake and Paul grabs the opportunity with both hands. And what he says is, it's a really long speech from verses 16 to 41. So you can go home and read it again later on. His main point is really simple. He is saying to these Jewish people, you know those books you read every week in your synagogue, what we call the Old Testament? You know those books about Moses and the law? You know those books about the history of Israel? You know those prophets with all those promises of God? The one they're all pointing to has come and his name is Jesus. It's a really simple sermon in many ways. The one who fulfills all those promises, he has come. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah you've been waiting for. And then he tells them, even though you, your people, killed Jesus, God has raised him from the dead and now he offers forgiveness to you and to anyone who will listen and believe in him. Look at how he finishes off there in verse 38. We'll get rid of our... uh, our map there, look at verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you and everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. What you have there is the gospel in a nutshell. Believe in Jesus and you can be forgiven. Jesus justifies us. That's such an important word. I hope you remember from our studies in Romans last year. To be justified means to be declared innocent by God, not because we've earned it. In fact, he says there, you couldn't keep Moses' law. You couldn't be innocent before God. You're not innocent. We've all sinned. Instead, God declares us innocent because Jesus paid the price for our sins. That is the message Paul preached from the very beginning. That is the message I pray we have all heard and believed. And that is the message we want to share with others. And just like us, many of the people there did believe. It says lots of people were intrigued and interested. Verse 42 is the preacher's favourite verse. Look at verse 42. It says that lots of the people were begging them to come back and tell them more. It's like people saying, give us another 30 minutes, Phil. You know, I won't. So the following Sabbath, it says almost the whole town showed up to listen. At this point, we're thinking... This mission thing is easy, isn't it? How good's this? Wherever they go, people becoming Christians, success after success. But then something happened. And is something that happened wherever they went preaching the gospel, opposition rose up, persecution started. On this occasion, it was the Jews, obviously ones who hadn't believed. They got jealous. They start yelling insults at Paul and Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas aren't surprised. They said, this is all part of God's plan. If you look at verse 46, look down there. Says then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first, but since you rejected and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the gospel, to the Gentiles. I hope you see what it's saying there. It's a powerful statement. When you say, I reject the gospel, you say, I am not worthy of eternal life because there's no other way to be saved. The only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus. So if you are told about Jesus and you say, I don't care, like they are, He's saying, you have considered yourself unworthy. You've rejected 
the offer. He says, but you've had your chance. It was right for us to tell you about Jesus. He's the Jew, Jewish Messiah. But now that you reject him, we're just going to tell everyone else. And don't blame God. You've made the choice. That's his point. And so here he turns to the Gentiles and for the first time, there is a widespread conversion of Gentiles, of most of us, non-Jews. That's why I say this is our family history. Look at how he describes it in verse 48. He says, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. As I say, this is just a wonderful moment. This is the Gentiles being included in God's people, not just Cornelius, not just Sergius, This is where the doors are flung open and salvation is offered to everyone. But I just want to focus for a second on what it says there in verse 48 to finish. Come with me to verse 48. Because if we were writing this, we would expect him to say something like, and all those who were convinced about Jesus believed. But he doesn't. Do you see what he says? He says, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. What's that mean? This is that wonderful truth of the Bible we call the doctrine of predestination. On the one hand, we are 100% responsible for our decision to accept or reject Jesus. Some of the people there chose to reject Jesus. They counted themselves unworthy of eternal life. These Gentiles chose to believe the gospel. They made that decision. They were responsible for it. But at the same time, the Bible says God was at work. God is in control. And before the beginning of time, he has appointed those who would believe. Now, modern minds complain. Modern minds say, I can't make that work in my head. Doesn't that make me a robot if it's all God's work? And, and so the Bible is just very clear in passages like this. No, we are responsible for our decision. We reject Jesus. We, we're responsible. If we accept Jesus, we're responsible. But overarching it all, God is sovereign. God is in control of it all. He predestines. He elects those who will come to faith. Now, people struggle to understand that, especially when they first become a Christian. But in my experience, once someone has been a Christian for a while, they say, of course that's true. Because they say, I would never have turned from my sin and trusted in Jesus if it wasn't through the work of God in my heart. See, once you become a Christian for a while, this ceases to be a stumbling block. You realise, no, no, this is the only way it can be. It fits with our experience as believers. But please understand this correctly, because this throws some people. Some people worry, what if I'm not appointed? What if I'm not appointed to eternal life? How do I know who's appointed and who isn't? The Bible never encourages that sort of thinking. God's Word says, if you believe in Jesus, you trust in Him and you're persevering in your faith, know that you are one of God's children. They know this, you are one of God's children. And do you notice how Paul and Barnabas don't wander around the crowd saying, oh, that guy looks like he might make a good Christian? They look around and say, oh, that one's got a barcode tattooed on their wrist. There's no sign. They just preach the gospel to everyone. And then God works through their preaching to save some of the people there. And that's what I want us to take away from the start of this series in the second half of Acts. God has given us, his people, a mission. That is what Paul and Barnabas understood. God has given us a mission to share Jesus and his offer of forgiveness with everyone, whether they are Jew or Gentile, whether they are male or female, whether they are whatever else divides humanity. It's not our job to discriminate. It's not our job to to decide 
who can be a Christian. It's our job to tell people about Jesus and then God will use that faithful sharing of the gospel to call people to salvation. And so my prayer is that God might use my and your faithful witness in exactly the same way he used these first believers. Let's pray that he would. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study the book of Acts this term and we pray that we will be so encouraged as we see the way you were at work in your early church and continue to work in your word through the preaching of the gospel. And we pray for us, we thank you for those that first shared Jesus with us and enabled us to find forgiveness. But we pray that we, together as a church and as individuals, wherever we have opportunity, might be faithful witnesses for Jesus and that you might work through our efforts to see people find the salvation we have found. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.